0: Welcome to Encyclopedia Obscura. My name is Casey. I'm Karen. And this is the podcast where two friends journey through the encyclopedia, one weird, mysterious, or obscure subject at a time. Today's episode is titled G for Gods.
1: I've got no comments for that. I know you were waiting.
0: Yeah, you're, there's usually a comment,
1: but yeah, no comment no. today.
0: Okay, fair enough. Nope. <laughs> and I actually don't cover anything to do with Christianity at all. Dude, me neither. Wow, that's big for us, especially when the episode is titled Gods.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I covered Abrahamic religions, and I think that, like, covered it all, as far as God lore. Yeah, I think that's
0: fair. And if anyone's wondering what Karen is referring to, you can go back to episode A of season two, where Karen does cover Abrahamic religions. So, more details on that in that episode. Yep, yep. All right, so I am doing the intro this week, and you know me. I always have to look up the official definition of anything just to get myself started, you know, just to wet my whistle before I dive into something specific, right?
1: I think that's fair. I mean, I probably should have, but I'm pretty sure I'm I'm good on this one. (laughs) I think
0: we both know the definition of what a god is, but I went to three different sources just to cover all my bases. Just full disclosure, I tried to find something like kooky and like fun facts and stuff for the beginning of this episode, like I usually do, you know, like 10 things you didn't know, or, you know, whatever it may be. Everything about gods is horrifying.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, religion is the root of all wars. It is. It No, and even their actions, like in
0: folklore, mm. terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking about, I'm not even getting into the, like, the super, super dark stuff. But we're like, there's a, a boar that gets eaten every night, boiled alive or something like that, and only to be regenerated the next day. And be eaten again the next day. Like stuff like that.
1: That sounds Greek. Was that Greek?
0: I think it was. (laughs) I was going to dabble into some Greek. Mm. And then I was like, no, everything here is super rapey. So I was like, I'm out. And so I went to. fucking Zeus. uh, Not even him, man. It's everybody. And then I went into voodoo. And I was watching a ton of stuff on voodoo yesterday. Mm -hmm. Freaked myself out. Karen got a text that I was changing my topic once again, did not know what my topic was going to be, but I certainly wasn't going to invoke any voodoo gods because <laughs> that shit freaked me out. So mm-hmm. I'll get to my topic, obviously, but like I scoured the internet to find the most lighthearted God I could find. And yeah. I think I kind of succeeded still a fair amount of bad things, but not nearly as bad as the other stuff I was researching. So,
1: Well, that's good because um, I go dark. extremely dark.
0: Yeah, I don't, I'm pretty, well, I'll let, I'll let listeners be the judge of that. All right. Let's start off with Oxford languages. God as a noun is defined as, and this is in Christianity and, and other monotheistic religions. It's defined as the creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. There's a second one under the noun, which is, and this is parentheses in certain other religions, A superhuman being or spirit worshipped as having power over nature or human fortunes, a deity. Such as like, I don't know, like a moon god, a sun god, that kind of thing. Uh Uh-huh. The word god can also be used as an exclamation. Um, So it's used for emphasis or to express emotions such as surprise, anger, or distress. An example of this would be, God, what did I do to deserve this? Which I say as I do my taxes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) I'm like looking at it, I'm like, ah. So according to Wikipedia, my favorite, as we both know, quote, in monotheistic thought, God is usually conceived of as the supreme being, creator and principal object of faith. God is usually conceived of as being omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, as well as having an internal and necessary existence. God is most often held to be incorporeal with said characteristics being related to conceptions of transcendence or imminence.
1: So basically God is everywhere. God is everything and God can do and see everything.
0: Basically. Yeah. Yeah. There's no limit on what God is you know, capable of doing.
1: Yep. Which tracks. I mean, for, for most uh, monotheistic religions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the
0: end of that quote. And then finally, because I have to be very thorough, I looked up God in Encyclopedia Britannica And went to their main page on God and got this quote. So quote, God and goddesses, generic terms for the many deities of ancient and modern polytheistic religions. Such deities may correspond to earthly and celestial phenomena or to human values, pastimes and institutions, including love, marriage, hunting, war, and the arts.
1: That all tracks.
0: It all tracks, right? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) While some are capable of being killed, many are immortal, although they are always more powerful than humans. They are mm-hmm. often described in human terms with all the flaws, thoughts, and emotions of humans. End quote. Yep. So there you have it. I did the dictionary. I did Wikipedia. I did Encyclopedia Britannica. Very good. They all basically said the same thing. Yep. So instead of covering one god this week, mostly because I could not find one that was both interesting to me and had enough information on them for an entire segment, I am instead going to cover several different gods with a centralized theme. Oh. I began my research in an article from Listverse titled, well, actually, it was titled something about like, I can't actually remember the name of it. It's going to be in my sources, but it was titled something like, lesser known gods you've probably never heard of, but the portion, (laughs) you got to start somewhere, Karen, okay? You got to start somewhere. But the portion that I was really drawn to was was the portion titled, and I quote, the global pantheon of poop gods. Oh, I like it. Bring on the poop. There's going to be a lot of shit talk coming up. (laughs) So apparently there are multiple gods of poop in many, many different societies. So many, in fact, that I will not be able to cover all of them in my segment today. But I'm going to hit some of the heavy hitters. Or heavy shitters. Shitters. I know. So here's the thing. (laughs) When I was writing my notes, I was like, there are so many poop jokes I can make. It's going to be so funny. And then I started learning more about these gods. I'm like, we do not want to fucking anger these gods.
1: You know what? (laughs) I go through like series of being like constipated and having diarrhea. So I'm pretty sure I've already angered them. I mean, probably. Like, my bowels are not happy ever. So whatever. Maybe I should make them mad because um, I'm mad. They don't
0: only affect your bowels, though. They do some other shit. All right. So let's start in Japan. In Japanese folklore, they have a toilet god that is called Kawaya no kami. This god was actually also associated with good harvest and fertility because the contents of outhouses were used as fertilizer in the fields.
1: Oh, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, right? I mean, we use fertilizer manure in the fields now, right?
1: Yep. Not necessarily
0: human manure, but still manure.
1: Pennsylvania, at least where I live right now, smells like cow shit because out here they liquefy the cow shit and then they spray it on the fields. Oh. And so it's putting cow shit particles into the air and like anywhere you drive, it just smells like straight up shit. Nice. Yeah, welcome yeah. to Pennsylvania. Down here, they
0: just pile it up and we shovel it places.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think like where you live, there's not a whole lot of like industrial farming.
0: No, it's just private small yeah. farms.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. up here, lots of farming: soybeans, tobacco, corn, mostly main, soybeans.
0: The main staples of American farming. Yeah. All right. Well, they fertilized with uh, human poop at the time that this this god was worshipped. You know what? I don't know the time periods for when these gods came to be. I don't know, not prominent, but you know what I'm talking about. Started yeah, like
1: they entered the pantheon, basically. Yeah. And
0: when they potentially, if they even are, um, no longer worshipped. You know what I'm talking about. So,
1: mm-hmm. although toilets are relatively new, well,
0: I'm talking about an outhouse, though.
1: Okay, so you're talking about a poop hole. Like a hole you poop in,
0: like a latrine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we'll get to to the dangers of latrines a little bit later, because yes, that also comes up.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> I am actually terrified of porta potties. I would legit rather squat and poop in the woods before I poop in a porta potty. I feel I, like
0: most people feel
1: that way, though. I won't even pee in them. Like, I will not.
0: Well, then you can never go to RunFest because there's no
1: running water. Nope. I mean, I've been and I just held it. Oh, well, no. I'll go to the bathroom and a porta potty Here's um, the thing.
0: I'll look for the double wide one. Not the handicapped one. I'm not a monster. But there are different size ones. And I will wait for the big one because, you know, I'm extremely claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. So the tiny one, like, especially if I'm wearing a backpack or whatever I may be wearing to RenFest, which Mm -hmm. sometimes can be a little bit cumbersome to take on and off. I'm not going to speak further on that, but (laughs) I'll wait for the large one again, not the handicapped one, but the large one to open up so that I can have that extra space to kind of move around.
1: Yeah. It's not really the space for me. It's like the smell, not even the smell. It's the possibility that the porta potty is full enough that when I use it, when my waist hits whatever is down there, it might overflow. No, it bounces like it bounces back up and sprays me in the butt. I don't want my That's genitals. That's the fear. I don't want my genitals to be sprayed with other people's feces. Listen, just hover over it, okay? It could, it, but see, then that gives like my waist more velocity when it hits. The other waste, which could create just a bigger splash. Okay, there is
0: something called a, I think it's called sheepy. Yeah, yeah. We got to get you a sheepy. That'll, that'll that'll take care of it. Then you can just use the urinal on the side of the quarter potty.
1: Yeah, that no might bounce be best. back.
0: No bounce back.
1: That might be best.
0: <laughs> Listeners, if you don't know what a sheepy is, please Google it. I'm not going to get
1: into it. <laughs> I can.
0: All right, it's go just, ahead,
1: care. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of just like a spout, like a little slide that you put below your female urethra and pee onto and it makes like a slide for your pee into the toilet.
0: Essentially turning the way you as a female typically urinate into the way men typically urinate.
1: Yeah, it's like you're you're lengthening your urethra.
0: Yeah. And you can your, aim and your, like, your. and then you don't have to worry about uh, your pee bouncing back at you and attacking you as Karen is feared.
1: It's just it's bacteria, you know. I I don't want somebody else's bacteria. I'm gonna tell you
0: right now, Karen. If a porta my- potty is that full, just go to another porta potty.
1: But how do you know?
0: You get in there and you look in, and you're like, I'm not. Oh.
1: I, I can't look at it. I will barf. I cannot look at it.
0: So when I was camping in Canada back when I was like, I don't know, 17 years old. So I didn't really care anything about anything because I was like, oh, I'm immortal. I'm 17 years old. Mm -hmm. They didn't have porta potties What they had was like latrines and then they had these big wooden boxes with a hole Mm -hmm. on the top. So when you were like camping and you rented out a campsite out in the middle of nowhere in Algonquin National Park, it's not in the middle of nowhere, obviously, if they're building latrines, someone's out there at some point. But that was basically like a porta potty with no sides. So what we would do is when you were approaching that area where you needed to go to the bathroom, you would just start clapping really loudly and be like, is anybody over there? Is anybody over there?
1: Oh my if gosh. If you were on the
0: toilet, you're like, I'm over here. Stay behind that bush until I'm done. Good Lord. Then you had that biodegradable like toilet paper. Oh, joys of camping. Mm. Anyway, I'm not, I've got like four pages left. We got to get back to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. um, This god was also invoked to protect people from falling into said outhouses and possibly drowning. So outhouses back at that time weren't really well lit. Right. Especially Mm -hmm. if you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So Mm -hmm. you would kind of pray to this god or invoke this god so that when you went to an outhouse, you didn't fall in and potentially live out Karen's greatest fear of getting anything from the outhouse on her body. Or mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. fall in and not be able to get out and drown in. There.
1: Oh no. Mm-hmm. No. Oh it my wasn't God. like a single, it
0: wasn't like a single, not single serve, but you know what I mean? It wasn't like one person could just go in there and do the it was like a big outhouse. So there was enough poop to drown in. No. Yeah. You just fall into this like ravine and then you can't get out and you're digging at the poop. And then you know, eventually you get too <laughs> tired and then you just drown.
1: <clears throat> I'm gonna barf. That is the most disgusting way to die. Oh, no.
0: Question for you. Would you rather be like attacked by like an apex predator and die by like a crocodile or like, I don't know what else can eat us. Some sort of big cat or a bear or drown in an outhouse.
1: I would absolutely prefer to be eaten.
0: Yeah. I feel like they would go for the throat. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Be quick and sanitary.
0: I don't know about sanitary.
1: Well, more sanitary. It's not
0: like a crocodile is brushing its teeth and gargling.
1: Yeah. Probably got
0: other dead body parts in its mouth.
1: All right. Well, I'm just going to die in my bed.
0: That's the dream, right? Yep. To properly honor this toilet god, those who worship had to keep an extremely clean toilet. And it is said in the folklore that the cleanliness of the toilet was reflected in the physical appearance of unborn children. So going back to the fertility thing, remember I said it was harvest and fertility. This is mm-hmm. the fertility part.
1: So like if you had a dirty toilet, your kid would come out ugly. Basically. So if the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could just imagine that kid is so ugly. Their toilet must be disgusting. Basically.
0: So if the toilet god <laughs> was happy with a clean toilet, the children could be born good looking. And the mother who was like pregnant, obviously with the unborn child they had a clean toilet would actually like pray to this toilet God and be like, make sure they have high cheekbones or cute little dimples or they're tall that they're strong or whatever it may be.
1: Oh my God. He's so handsome. His mom must have the cleanest toilet ever. Yep. Basically. Mm. Essentially. So if the toilet was not clean, the baby was
0: said to have come out ugly and unhappy. I don't know if that means like colicky or whatever it may be, or just generally unhappy in life for the rest of their life. Who knows? Mm. So, in different parts of Japan, there are different rituals and reasoning for said rituals of the toilet god. Depending on where you go in Japan, there's obviously a little bit of different folklore associated with it. Obviously, anywhere you go in a country, the people in that area are going to make a folklore of their own, right? We see that here in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's everywhere.
0: Yeah. In one area, it's said that if you have a toothache, that you can offer the toilet god lights, and that will help with your toothache. In another area, people who worship the god would put a willow branch and some mochi out and ask the god to protect the house's inhabitants from bladder issues. Okay. Yeah, so depending where you go, what offerings or what the the toilet god needs to be happy differ, but not really that much. I mean, it all kind of comes back to, like, health in one way or the other. Makes sense. As I stated earlier, the Japanese weren't the only ones with a toilet god. In Korea, the toilet god is named Cheyu Kingshin, or Chai King Ganshin. This god is portrayed as a young woman and called the young lady of the toilet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like Moden Myrtle.
0: Yeah, except you don't really want to piss this one off. She was said to have a perverse character and the ladies of the household would propitiate her each October. I'm not sure what she's doing with her, quote, perverse character. Could not find anything on it. To be fair, I was going through a lot of gods in my research. So I didn't do a hard Google, but like, I'm not sure I want to know what she's doing with her perverse character in the bathroom. Next up is the Chinese god, Ziga, the goddess of poop. She was also known as Mao Gu, the lady of the latrine or the third daughter of the latrine. She is believed to be the spirit of a physically abused concubine that died in a latrine. I don't know if she was beaten to death in there or she drowned, whatever it may be. She died in a latrine. She was such a big goddess. A cult began in her name and women would worship her on the 15th day of the first month of every year.
1: The 15th day of the first month of every year.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to say like January 15th, but the Chinese calendar is not the same as our calendar. So that's the way I put it. Yeah. Um, They would make homemade dolls and pray to the doll. And then any motions of the doll would be used for fortune telling. So if the doll shifted in any way, they'd be like, it's a sign. And they'd use that to foretell the future. This is all very Annabelle the doll to me.
1: Yeah. I was just thinking like that would um, not sit well with me.
0: Yeah. Just sitting there waiting for the doll to move. The other part of this is they used to tell the doll the mother and the father of the house were gone. So it was free to be possessed. Like, so, okay. If this doll is the reincarnate of the concubine who was beaten by the lady of the house, then telling the doll that the lady of the house and her husband were out allowed the spirit to feel comfortable to possess the doll and then portray like it's fortune telling stuff. I mean, Does that, that make makes sense?
1: sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't like it, but it makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, if you think this is creepy, you should have seen what I was reading when I was going to go the voodoo route. And it was like, no, I can't. I'll never sleep again. You might um, not
1: sleep after my segment? I
0: mean, is it about possessed dolls no then i'm i'll probably be fine okay i also read another article that said um when we could leave an image of the goddess by the toilet and the goddess would answer their questions
1: like while they're pooping or like whatever i'm not sure how the information
0: <laughs> was conveyed if it's an image and not the doll anymore but i
1: guess this is what people did before they put the ingredients on uh on shampoo bottles you know to read while you poop. <laughs> It's funny. I was, uh, I don't know where I read it or something like that, but someone said,
0: left my phone in my room. So now I'm doing it old school. And they were literally reading the ingredients on the back of a shampoo bottle.
1: Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I mean, that's what I used to do. I used to be like, ah, yes. Wash, rinse and repeat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, sulfate free. That's fantastic. <laughs>
1: yes. I don't know what any of this means. Nope. I can't even pronounce these words. Nope.
0: And yet somehow I'm rubbing it into my scalp. Yep. Moving right along down the Pacific, let's head on over to New Zealand. In New Zealand, the gods and spirits of the Maori people, referred to as the Atwa, are believed to focus on the village latrine. If a warrior was feeling sick or carried out a tapu, which is basically a taboo, um, anything that would be considered taboo to their people, the warrior would go to the latrine and bite its structure. This would transfer the sickness or the taboo occurrence back to the world of the gods.
1: Bite the structure. Yes.
0: Like, a bite the wall of the structure? Bite, like, or- bite the structure, Karen. It didn't say what part of the structure. I imagine, like, the corner it was probably wood. just, like, you know, give it a little...
1: Okay, but um, E. coli is a thing. I wouldn't
0: bite the inside of the structure, bite the outside of the structure.
1: I'm assuming the latrine has,
0: like, a house around it. Like you're not fighting the toilet seat. This may be an assumption that's only in my brain, though.
1: It just doesn't sound sanitary.
0: Also in this folklore, the gods would regularly frequent the latrine and excrement was regarded as food for the gods. So if you were like by a latrine and you went and bit it to get rid of like all that, you know, taboo or feeling sick, then you were closer to the gods because they were considering the excrement to be food.
1: So I would imagine like being mad at the gods and being like eat shit and then going and pooping and then they're like yes thank you this is my favorite meal
0: yeah I feel like there's a lot more there than the articles I read are like conveying I feel like this is like very high level you know this happened this happened kind of situation but there's probably way more reasoning around this or like tradition or like something that caused this to happen I feel like The information I was given in the articles was a little bit for like shock value. You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, they believed in this and this and this. But like, why did they believe in this?
1: I mean, the Japanese God made sense to me because keeping your bathroom clean is healthy. Yeah. So like attributing a God to giving you favor for having a clean bathroom makes sense. Because if you're not getting E. coli, you're going to be happier and healthier. Agree. This does not make sense to me.
0: And that's all I have for you on that subject. So we're moving on to the Romans.
1: So, oh, good. Oh, good. Our favorite. <laughs> the ancient
0: Romans actually had two gods associated with poo. First is Cloacina, the goddess of the sewer system. Second is Sterquilinus, god of manure. So the goddess, named from the Latin word cloaca or sewer, was invoked if sewers became blocked or backed up. The mythology around her would eventually be combined with the Roman goddess Venus, who is more well known in modern times. The second goddess of love. The goddess of love. I'm not sure how a backed up sewer and the goddess of love make a connection, but who am I to tell you who to associate with? The second god, Steriquilinus, also referred to as Steracutius, got his name from the word strecus or excrement. I read him both referred to as the god of dung and the god of manure but feel like that's the same thing. I also read that he was also called the god of odor, but only found that in one source. And I'm like, god of odor, really? He was an important god to farmers, and according to lore, had a close relationship with Saturn, the god of agriculture, which makes more sense to me than the previous connection between Venus and the goddess of the sewer.
1: Yeah, no, that makes more sense. Last but not
0: least, we have Shed Bet Kis, a vengeful toilet god. This was a god the Babylonians worshipped, it said when you go to the toilet, you must do so quietly to avoid being attacked by this god. In addition, if you have <laughs> sex with him. What's so funny, Karen? I don't know what you're why you're giggling.
1: <laughs> Nobody wants to hear you shit. Yeah. If, if you're
0: having a bad time on the toilet, just know mm-hmm. that this vengeful god is going to come attack you.
1: I mean, you're already having an explosive diarrhea and then you get attacked by a god. That I mean, is a bad day.
0: That is a bad day. <laughs> That is an all-around bad day.
1: (laughs) Oh no. Talk about shitting
0: yourself. Like
1: (laughs) (laughs) at least you're already on the
0: toilet. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yeah, you're like dealing with like intestinal distress. And then like, (laughs) I don't know, God comes out of nowhere. He probably has like a spear or something like that. He's just like, this is for your noisy shit. Just like spears you (laughs) on the toilet. Anyway, so (laughs) in addition to being attacked if you're on the toilet making too much noise, if you have sex within half a mile of the toilet, okay, Mm -hmm. within half a mile of the toilet, I don't know how they got that measurement, especially back in the day. Like, I don't know how historic miles are, but just doesn't seem like it rings true. But whatever, Mm. the god, this god would curse you. you had any children conceived by having sex and those kids would have epilepsy. Oh, and well, here's the other half of it, though, Karen. I'm not sure how this folklore came about because we literally have bathrooms in our homes that are like right next to bedrooms. So by that reasoning, the majority of the world, if not all of the world would have, you know, would be epileptic. Um, so that is just some. And when I say some, I mean, there is a shitload of toilet gods out there, um, many of which I am sure I have offended in my segment. So Karen, what do you have for your segment this week?
1: Oh boy. Okay. (laughs) I got to get a little serious after all that shit talk. All right. (laughs) So the goddess thugs and holy men. Legend tells us that once there was a notorious cult of thieves and murderers that covertly terrorized the busy highways of early colonial India. They left the mutilated corpses of their victims in roadside ditches and wells, all in the name of Kali, the Hindu mother goddess. Kali is feared and adored. Mortals and gods alike cannot resist her. In Sanskrit, Kali means she who is death. She is, the, she is the Hindu goddess of time, doomsday, and death. She is said to offer protection during disasters and epidemics. She embodies the Hindu concept of Shakti, the feminine energy of creativity and fertility. In New Age circles, she is associated with change, hope, courage, rebirth, joy, and cleansing, and is represented by swords, honey, flowers and dance. She represents balance. She takes life to give life. She represents the cycles of nature and is the personified dichotomy of viciousness and nurturing. The Brooklyn Museum tells visitors, quote, Kali kills that which stands in the way of human purity and peace in both life and death, such as evil, ignorance and egoism. End quote. Okay. I like her. Me too. Her worship began in the mountain village tribes of South Asia prior to being adopted by Sanskritic traditions. She makes her first appearance in the sixth century Hindu philosophical text, the Devi Mahatmya, which means the glorifications of the goddess. She is black or blue. She is usually nude or nearly nude. What do you mean black or blue? Her Her skin color. Okay. Yep. Her skin is usually black or blue. Well, it's always black or blue. Okay. She is usually represented as nude or nearly nude. She has a long tongue like a dagger. She has three eyes, two like physically typical humans, and a third perpendicular one in the center of her forehead. Mythology.net reports that these eyes represent the sun, moon, and fire. With these elements, she can see all time, past, present, and future. It's interesting. Sun, moon, and fire to choose that like one element. Yeah. Fire.
0: Yeah. Because the sun technically is fire.
1: Yeah. I'm not, sh- I, I didn't dive too deep into that part. Cause I'm not,
0: I'm not asking yeah. you to clarify it. I'm just saying, it's interesting that that would be sun, moon, and fire, not like sun, moon, and water. Cause water is not, in, you know,
1: not the same. Yeah. Yeah. And like, which corresponds with past, present, and future. So I guess fire is future.
0: No, that does not bode well.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't put this in my notes, but Kali is also the name of the time period we are currently living in. Oh, great. Um, And it, and I don't remember all the details, but it's basically destruction and a complete turnaround of Hindu tradition. So we're doomed, but I think we already knew that though. (laughs) Yeah, but it all starts over, anyways. There's four periods. And they start over after each other.
0: Well, it starts over for the people who survive. The rest of us are dead.
1: Well, Hindus believe in uh, reincarnation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Kali has many arms. And when she is shown with exactly four arms, she represents the complete circle of life. The right represents the creative side and the left, which is pretty much always holding either a sword or a decapitated head equals destruction. She almost always holds a bloody sword in her left hand. The sword can be interpreted as a representation of knowledge, which slices away ignorance and opens the gates of freedom. She wears a skirt made of human arms and and a necklace of human heads and likes to hold an extra head in her upturned palm. She's often shown standing or dancing on her husband, who is laying on the ground. (laughs) I'll get more to that story. Okay,
0: you're gonna need to explain that to me because I need more details.
1: <laughs> yes, there, I've, I've got them. <laughs> so when she is not standing or dancing on her husband, she is often shown in battle. In her mountainous South Asian beginning, she was known as the Ogress Long Tongue, who was known to lick up offerings with her long tongue. As such, Callie is often depicted with her tongue out. So she has four Hindu origin stories, and I'm going to tell them all to you. They're not very long, though. So the first one is Kali was created by Durga, another goddess who was fighting the demon Raktabija or blood seed. Stories tell that either Durga herself or all the gods came together to create Kali to be most powerful. They gave her all their weapons they had. But blood seed only created more demons with each drop of blood. So Kali swallowed all of his minions whole, chopped off his head, and sucked all the blood from his body, not letting a single drop hit the ground. Okay. Yes. Efficient. Very cleanly. Mm-hmm. Her and the gods of the latrine would get along. I think they would, actually. So the second origin story is... Durga was angry while battling the buffalo demon, Mahishasara, Kali. And so Kali burst from her furrowed forehead and became a manifestation of Durga's rage. Kali slayed and ate all the demons except for their heads, which she wore like a string of pearls. But so Kali, Kali's pretty big then. Um, I don't know. Like there's no... Um, If you can wear
0: heads as a necklace, like my head is probably, I don't know, eight inches, maybe?
1: Yes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's big. She's big enough that she can wear us like pearls. But Kali did not stop there, and she couldn't be stopped. She executed all wrongdoers she met. Demons, humans, and gods were all doomed to Kali's swords. She raged until Shiva, the god of time, lay in her path. When she stepped on him and realized who she was standing on, she calmed down. The two, Shiva and Kali, became a couple. And so that's where you see her standing or dancing on her husband. Oh, it's a meet cute.
0: It is a little bit yeah, of a meet-cute. You just knock him down and dance on him.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, so his, um, it was his strategy to get Kali to stop was to lay down in her path. I guess he just like took a leap of faith and was like, obviously, she's going to stop for me. Hmm. And our third story, origin story, is Kali was born from the goddess Parvati's shed dark skin. So basically, Parvati shed her skin like a snake. And what was revealed was um, a much paler skin. And she became known as the fair one or gari. And Kali was the sheath or kashika. Kali's blackness is a symbol of eternal darkness, a place that both creates and destroys. And here's the last one, and I'm going to quote it directly from worldhistory.org. Quote: Men and gods were being terrorized by Daruka, who could only be killed by a woman. And Parvati was asked by the gods to deal with the troublesome demon. She responded by jumping down Shiva's throat. This was because many years previously, Shiva had swallowed Halahala, the poison which had risen from the churning of the ocean during the creation and which had threatened to pollute the world. By combining with the poison still held in Shiva's throat, Parvati was transformed into Kali. Leaping from Shiva's throat in her new guise, Kali swiftly dispatched Aruka and all was well with the world once more. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So she's got some origins. Yeah. So it's unclear how after all this violence, Kali became linked to motherly love and she is today. She is linked to motherly love. Uh, And this is just conjecture from me, but maybe people saw their mothers slaying metaphorical demons while protecting them and made that connection. Or maybe people tried to give her traditional female responsibilities like children. I like that less. Yeah,
0: it's probably the latter, though.
1: Probably, and what I talk about in a little bit will add some credence to that as well. So Britannica reports that, quote, since the late 20th century, feminist scholars and writers in the United States have seen Kali as a symbol of feminine empowerment, while members of New Age movements have found theologically and sexually liberating inspiration in her more violent sexual manifestations. So um, a little bit of cultural appropriation here. Today, Kali has a strong following in Bengal, Eastern India, and Southeast Asia. and these locations, as well as at the Kali Ghat Temple in Calcutta, a Kali Puja festival celebrates her annually in late October or early November. Her constant reminder that death is inescapable encourages her people to accept and not fear. One last Kali story before we get back to the murderous thieves. A band of thieves set out to find a human sacrifice for the goddess. They chose a monk to kill. They brought the monk to the Kali statue, but before they could begin their ritual, Kali came alive and slayed all the thieves and then played volleyball with their heads. Kali is not cool with their choice of a good holy man for sacrifice. Good on you, girl. Yep. So with that in mind, let's get back to the murderous thieving cult. This cult <laughs> this cult was called thagi. The word is likely pre colonial Sanskritic or Persianate. In Hindi, uh the closest thing to thagi is thag, and thief or rogue in Sanskrit is thaga, but it starts with an S. And this term thuggy is where the often derogatory term thug comes from oh okay yeah interesting i thought so they are also known as bond cigars or stranglers so if you've ever seen indiana jones the temple of doom i was gonna ask you about indiana jones the temple of doom so right the thuggy is the mantra chanting cult portrayed by white people in brownface I remember seeing it when I was like 10 years old and I was like, oh, this is cool. But then looking back at it, when I was doing my research, I was like, oh, that is definitely a white person with some really dark concealer on. Mm. Yeah. Not cool. No, not cool at all. God damn it. Yeah. Uh, They should have known better. It was the 80s. Anyways. Thagi's history can be traced back to 9th century writings by Indian philosopher Basavarjana. Documentation shows that the Sultan of Delhi kicked out 1,000 thugs from his city in 1290. Britannica describes a thagi as, quote, a member of a well-organized confederacy of professional assassins who traveled in gangs throughout India for several hundred years, end quote. The Hindu.com reported that by the 19th century, Thagi was a fraternity of ritual stranglers. Ew. Thagis were known to befriend travelers. And then when everyone slept, they would use a silk scarf or noose to strangle them. And they robbed them. They are said to have justified their violence because they were bringing balance to the world in the name of Kali. Bullshit. Mm Mm-hmm. So Dr. Richard Sherwood, who was part of the colonization of India, was the first to connect the Thuggee with Kali. As we know, Kali is a Hindu goddess, but not all thuggies were Hindu. Many were Muslims. They only strangled their victims. That way no blood would be lost and the blood could be offered to Kali. Where they lose me in that, like in this explanation, is... They aren't offering the blood to Kali, though. They're leaving the corpses in roadside ditches and wells. So they're not, like, letting the blood out for her. Yeah, but she also didn't want any blood spilled. So maybe they're like, here's a body when you're ready. Well, I would not say that she didn't want the blood spilled. Okay. Because, and we'll get to it. The thuggy had two rules. One, must murder the victim before they could rob them. Don't know why. And two, do not murder women and children. In some cases, the orphans of victims would be kidnapped and groomed to be the Geese. Uh, the following quote is from SwordandShield.com quote, Due to the secretive and guarded nature of their organization, the Geese were often highly regarded men within Indian society. The Geese had their own language, they spoke to one another and used secret hand signals to communicate in order to identify other members around India. All members played a role within the group. Older or sickly members would often work as lookouts, while the younger members would con the travelers. Another member would be chosen to commit the murder, and others would help with the burial. Children were often kept near them in order to avoid suspicions about the group. End quote. Ew. Yeah, and okay, so here's the thing. I only read that in one place and no sources were given attached to that article. So I can't be entirely sure it's true because mm-hmm. another source I found who is a historian and contributor for academia.edu, Kim A. Wagner, asserts that the Ghee was not an identity that came from your family or caste but a means to sustain oneself by all types of people in Indian society. She added that it is often a seasonal occupation between harvests. Their main targets were Indian people serving in the British army, gun in horse merchants, and religious pilgrims. Loot was used to bribe patronizing rulers, officials, and guards, and Wagner reports, quote, the relative wealth gained by the geese rarely permitted the thugs to abandon the profession altogether. These were not, it's very unlikely, at least in my opinion, based on Wagner's research and plethora of sources, mm-hmm. <laughs> that these were wealthy people who were connected and throwing gang signs at each other. You know, I yeah. don't think so. And I'll get a little bit more into another, like, fact that supports that these people were not super organized and easy to identify. So between 1808 and 1810, 60 corpses were found along these highways. Eight men were eventually arrested for the 60 murders, but none were convicted. And this is because the only evidence was confessions that these eight men gave. At the time, confessions were not enough to convict. But by the 1830s, a confession would be enough. So what was the change? You're going to get pissed. (laughs) All right, I'm preparing myself. Let's do it. The change was the amount of power the East India Company had to create and enforce legislation. The East India Company were British merchant colonizers who were in India to exploit the people and their resources. It had began its exploitation of the Indian subcontinent in the 1600s, but it wasn't until the 1800s that they had killed enough indigenous people to be the political majority. Great. Fantastic. Yes. It gets worse.
0: Of course it does. Why wouldn't it? Yeah, <sighs> man.
1: Yeah. The company identified the geese as a threat to company sovereignty, and combated them with legislation and policing in the 1830s. And right, that should be simple, because we know who thuggies are. But we don't. Except the company did not know much about where these murderers were coming from, or who they were. They So they basically made up lore about how to identify the geese.
0: Oh, no. Now I can tell where this is going, and I don't like it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one Englishman had the caucasity is. <laughs> His name, by the way, is Meadows. Meadows Taylor had the Wait, not Taylor Meadows. It's Meadows Taylor. Yes. Fuck this guy. Yeah.
0: Stupid name.
1: Yes. So he had the caucasity to write a book titled Confessions of a Thug. So his uh, his text directly influenced legislation and policing practices. Largely, law enforcement still couldn't tell who thuggies were apart from other brown people in India. For one fairly obvious reason, which we'll get to later. So when they did catch a suspect at the Ghee, they tattooed him. Okay. What? Yeah, which is way too similar to what we know happened in World War II, only a hundred years later.
0: Putting that uh, all aside, and I'm not putting it aside because I don't want to like I'm not trying to be insensitive or say that wasn't like one of the most fucked up things I've ever heard. And there's a lot about the Holocaust that we we could cover and I think everything that happened there was terrible, but I'm going back to your original statement suspected.
1: Yeah. So when so you they could start- be
0: accused and then they would tattoo you for life to be associated with this group of people, whether that's positive or negative, it's tattooed on your body for life.
1: Yes. But wow. okay. So the tattooing didn't actually work. Because, and this is from the textbook on the subject, the title of the textbook is the Encyclopedia of Postcolonial Studies, Mm -hmm. Uh, quote, the practice of criminal tattooing proved to be impractical as a result of the malleability of body marks, the broad range of languages in which the tattoos were inscribed onto the body,
0: Mm -hmm. as
1: well as the lack of systematicity in its convict application. So, the East India company wasn't as organized as the Nazis. And so this didn't work. Um, And what year was this again in comparison to world war II, This was the 1830s. So only a hundred years earlier. Yeah. But to get back to your uh, suspected question, and I'm not sure I put this in my notes, but after a certain legislation was put into place, anybody could accuse anybody of being, In contact with a thuggy. And if you are in favorable contact, like you're not fighting the thuggy, if you just happen to know somebody who is suspected of being a thuggy, you are also able to be convicted.
0: This is some Salem witch trial bullshit. Uh, Yeah, it's really fucked up. I saw Goody Proctor with the thuggies.
1: Yeah. So once the tattooing failed, the company then shifted their focus to nomadic groups even if those people were only traveling for a short period of time. For example, and this is another quote from the textbook, the thuggy and dacoity departments targeted numerous communities and social groups, ranging from wandering mercenaries and laborers displaced by war and social upheaval to bands of fakirs whose roving economies were at variance with the company's land-based revenue system. So these groups were given problematic status and were put under surveillance, which means the company comes in without regard to those living in India, creates and imposes an economic system that does not mesh with their already established lifestyles, and then profiles those very people for not just falling in line and not having the resources to participate in this economic system. Great. Love that. Yeah. And then there is some correlation here between economic instability due to the changes the colonists' company made, and increased crime is historically typical and linked to economic instability. And then this is what I was just talking about with the the suspected issue. Then the company passed Act 30, so XXX, 30, of 1836 which made it illegal to be suspected of gang association anti-thug legislation is the beginning of institutionalized discrimination against entire castes labeling them as genetically predisposed of violence and robbery does that sound familiar to you yeah it
0: sounds i've been all history just keeps on fucking repeating itself i swear to god
1: (sighs) convicted thuggies could be executed sentenced to labor also known as slavery mm-hmm. or imprisoned those who were sentenced to labor made bricks carpets linens and other goods that the company sold for profit
0: of course they did that's exactly what's happening within the prison system right now so yep
1: yep yep okay uh then the people of india staged rebellion known as the sapoy mutiny or the first war of independence it lasted from 1857 to 1859 and was obviously a direct response to colonial rule and inequality. Unfortunately, it did not do much to end the persecution based on physical traits, but it did end the company rule. After that, the British crown oversaw the ruling of India. The term thug was replaced with criminal tribes. This led to further studies in anthrocriminology, A branch of science that studies the connection between a person's morality and physical traits. What the fuck? Yeah. That's Uh, not a thing. That's not a thing. It is not. It has been used to justify genocide like the Holocaust and racist attitudes worldwide. And it is completely fucking nonsense.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: (gasps) Right? Oh my god, Karen. Uh, Yep. So between 1826 and 1835, a total of 1,562 thugs were tried. 382 were sentenced to death and 909 to transportation. And, and I think that's labor and 77 to imprisonment for life. From my research, it seems that the thuggee connection to Kali is mostly hearsay. I'm no scholar, but it seems that Kali was linked with thuggee and their violence because her appearance and behavior is so contrary to what was expected of women in the West. Further, it appears that the link between Kali and Thuggies could have been a device used to otherize these career stranglers, and Hindus who worshipped Kali and thus justify profiling and punishing them. So I'm going to move on a little bit here. While I'm in, I'm unsure of the legitimacy of the connection between Kali worship and the geese, Human sacrifice has been committed in her name as recently as 2006. Um, it, we're just getting darker here. I'm sorry. Oh. In the remote village of Barka in Kersha, in Uttar Pradesh, lawless superstitiousness and prejudice run unchecked. In 2006, this sugarcane farming village, eight hours from Delhi, a child was sacrificed to Kali. Sumitra, a 43-year-old mother of two lazy men in their 20s, had bloody nightmares of Kali. Her days aren't much better, farming in the hot sun and dry earth. She has long been abandoned by her son's father, and she is the sole provider. She feels anxious and unsafe. Sole provider to two 20-year-old males? Yes. What are they doing? Nothing. You're going to hate them even more in just a minute. Great. Can't wait. Yep. When a traveling holy man, and I put that in like quotes, holy man, Ugh. passes through Barka, Sumitra consults him about her gory visions of Kali. He instructs her to sacrifice a chicken at her front door and offer it to Kali. But Sumitra still screamed herself awake in the middle of the sweaty night. The transient holy man was unsurprised that a chicken was not enough and told Sumitra to take a young boy from the village and offer him to the goddess. And so her sons abducted Akash Singh while his parents slept. Back in Sumitra's home, they performed a ceremony with incense. Enchanting, chanting, Sumitra smeared the child with sandalwood paste and ghee. Then they mutilated Akasha's body, removing his nose, ears, and hands, and laid him to bleed before an image of Kali. Wait, he was still alive? Yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. And so this is, um, and you'll see some other examples of how traditional Kali sacrifices you are supposed to let the blood flow. And that's why I don't think the thuggies leaving the bodies uncut in ditches is valid. Like, I don't think it's connected to Kali. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. The next day, Samitra told everyone that she just found Akasha's body outside, but nobody believed her. And thank God. the This was in 2006? Yes. (sighs) Oh, okay. The villagers Poor beat kid. Sumitra's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, really. The villagers beat Sumitra's son. Good. Her sons until one confessed and, quote, he screamed, I killed the boy so my mother could be safe, end quote. And that is according to the Guardian. If you
0: give a shit about your mother, you would find some way to alleviate all the work she's got on her back. She probably yep. has night terrors due to stress and mental illness.
1: fucking Absolutely. She's not seeing Kali. No. No, she's just really fucking stressed because she's working in the hot sun all day trying to feed two assholes who are just laying about. Mm -hmm. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. Kerja police reported that this is not an isolated incident. They had investigated dozens of sacrifices in the six months leading up to Akasha's death. Police don't have much hope of stopping future sacrifices. The perps are largely illiterate, and adhere to blind superstitions, the killings have been motivated by promises of answered prayers by tantric priests, four of which had been arrested at the time of the Guardian article in 2006. Unfortunately, because these mystics are nomadic, by the time the sacrifice is complete, they're in the wind. A Time Magazine article titled Killing for Mother Kali by Alex Perry says that while it would appear by these stories that human sacrifice is common in India, but Perry claims it is not. It's not supported by Hindu tradition, which is largely peaceful and peace-loving, practicing abstinence and vegetarianism. Traditional Kali rituals often require human sacrifice, but according to Perry, Kali temples use substitutes like large pumpkins, human-shaped dolls filled with flowers, or animals particularly goats. It is not the temples or those who can be held accountable that encourage these sacrifices. Tantrics and their followers believe that Kali favors those who favor her. She writes the wrongs done to her devotees, brings misfortune to those who oppress them, gives wealth to the poor and babies to the barren, as long as they bring her blood. Sociologist Ashish Nandy says, quote, you see your neighbor doing well above his caste and position, and someone tells you to get a child and do a secret ritual and you can catch up. Mysticism expert Ipsida Roy Shaka-Riverti adds, it's got nothing to do with real mysticism or with spiritualism. It comes down to pure and simple greed. So a lot of shit has been attributed to Kali, but as we know, people are shit. Kali is just being used to justify their shit. And on that note, have a great week. <laughs> uh yep. Is that all you got? That's it, man. Um <laughs> so when I started my research, I I was looking for a goddess that was covered in a Josh Gates episode. And I couldn't remember what it was. I knew it was like the goddess of blood, and I had No idea what I was getting into. Clearly. But you know me, the darker it is, the more interested I am. So I can't just like let it go. True, true, true. So if you
0: would like to reach out to us, you can find us at eothepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Encyclopedia Obscura. We have recently shut down our Twitter for no particular reason. Not that we were having any issues or anything with Twitter. We have just decided to focus on our Instagram and just mainly have any kind of correspondence through that. So if you would like to message us and let us know your weird, mysterious, or obscure ideas for the future episode, you can find us on our Instagram. And that's it for today. I'm Casey.
1: And I'm Karen.
0: And this is Encyclopedia Obscura.